Welcome to True Health Live, Episode 5, Vaccines, What We Know, Part 2. This episode was recorded prior to the most recent expansion of eligibility of the COVID-19 vaccinations. There was such a spotlight on the health equity and like, you know, like you said, like the mistakes made and, you know, there's a problem here, so we want to fix it. So we're going to make sure that these populations get it first, um, of course, like within this rollout. But what we're hearing is, and I'll use the example of um, um, this um, clinic that's in New York that, you know, basically reported their their population, their constituency is mainly African-American. And when they started to get uh, the supply of the vaccine, they look up and they notice that the, the people on the line are the majority are white. And these are not the people that live in the community and they're not their normal constituency. And this is, this is very similar to a lot of the stories, um, and report outs and, and anecdotally in some cases that I've heard in other conversations that people are reporting like, you know, seeing people that don't live in their community. And I'm talking about underserved communities saying that they're seeing mainly, um, uh, mostly like upper middle class or wealthy rich white people in the in the lines at these centers getting these uh, uh getting the vaccine i think there was also an article about um something happening in san francisco where i guess i guess like again each state is different so i think in california they have um like a code that you use and so they were noticing that um this particular code or codes were being shared amongst um, upper class or upper middle class, like Bay Area students that were, you know, sharing it amongst each other so that they could get the vaccine um, in place of those populations who the codes were actually meant for. So this is a real problem and a real issue and something that's happening. It's not fake, you know, even though, you know, we're hearing stories, but there are articles reported where medical center directors, clinic directors are reporting out that this is what they're seeing. Um, so I was interested, like, Precious, you as a CEO uh, of a medical, of a healthcare institution, you know, that does have satellite clinics um, in the city. Um, and we're, again, we're in the New York area, New York City area. What are you seeing? Right. So, we are not seeing that within our system because at this point we haven't gotten to the point of community vaccinations. We're vaccinating those um, served by other state operated agencies. Um, but many of my uh, clinicians who, who moonlight in community clinics have given reports of similar experiences. And, and I think ultimately there's just, um, there's a great deal of sadness, right? Because the reality is they're showing up because they want to receive this this vaccine. Um, and so we need to kind of think of a, a more balanced approach to offering, making sure that everyone has their needs met. Um, we, we're going to go where the, where the supply is, right? That's just, that's just how supply and demand works. Um, but as it was mentioned earlier, there just isn't enough supply to meet the demand, which is why this third, you know, why Johnson and Johnson's vaccine was approved under this emergency approval process, um, just to kind of increase the, 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 the amount of vaccines that are available. Um, there is a lot of 
research going into every nuance of this really new, right? Because if we think about it, this is, I want to say we started vaccination in November, December. So this is still really, really new. We're, we're not even in March just yet. I mean, when, well, we're recording. It's not even March just yet. Um, we're still in the infancy stages of what is going to be history. Like we're, we're making history right now. So as, as critical as we may be, um, it's important to realize or acknowledge at least that we're innovating at, at such epic proportions that you almost have to continue to say, okay, so what about, so what about that? So now we need to change this, um, in order to keep up with what well, what's happening. So the only thing that we can do is to keep these conversations going and to really be honest about what we're seeing and how we can address it, you know, each day. <laughs> yeah. It's like in many of the large cities that have um, underserved populations, which you're definitely going to find in a large city, they're receiving, like these these populations and these groups of people are receiving like a minimal percentage of the inoculations while their counterparts who are from the wealthiest and whitest wards are receiving nearly half of the doses so um i it really um i i really wanted to sit back like you know taking into account we're 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 talking about there is an issue of access right when it comes to elderly and understanding we have to think about reading level when it comes to um, anybody, not just the country, and not just elderly, I think the reading level is fifth grade now. So it's like, how are people understanding the 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 how, what, what, why, and where they can go get vaccinated if they so choose, um, and if they're eligible. Um, one thing that comes up though is like, you know, there's definitely the misconceptions and there's the history. Um, especially when it comes to people of color, of mistrust, like an overall mistrust of the healthcare system. So one thing, like a question I wanted to pose, and this can be, this is to the audience um, and who's listening, you can send your comments um, in the chat or, you know, send it, send a, a note to us, an email. Um, I'll give the email address at the end of the program. But like, you know, it begs the question, like, is that history of mistrust? Because it's known now, right? Is that something that may put people of color at a disadvantage. So what I'm getting at is it, well, they just trust the medical, the, the healthcare system anyway. So they're probably going to leave these, these doses and these um, vaccinations untouched. So we may as well go get them. So that's something that I really thought about, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but it was something to think about um, when we're t- talking about the truths of, of all these different variables and perspectives when it comes to healthcare. And then the other question was, um, then you, do, you also have to ask, of, well, with all the talk about getting the vaccines to the most underserved populations, just all uh, a way to like just create loopholes for appointments to be siphoned by others, you know? So it, it just kind of makes you think about all the, and there, I'm sure there are many different questions and things that come up that we can think of, but those are just the two. So, you know, and I invite the audience to, you know, share your thoughts on that. Um, Alia, like, what are you thinking when it comes to that? Or do you have any, like, um, thoughts or input um, when it comes to um, the supply and the demand and how the populations that need it the most aren't necessarily reaping the, the um, benefits or they're not, they're not seeing the, the, the inoculations. Uh, we're not seeing the inoculations in those populations and the numbers that were expected, I guess. Yeah, I definitely would agree. There's a problem with access. There's also this 
you know, um, this mistrust that is there. And I don't think we can ignore that. You know, historically speaking, there's so many, you know, so many examples of that where, you know, underserved communities have been, you know, um, made to feel that they can't trust the system or they can't trust, you know, the administration of drugs or distribution of vaccines, etc. So there is, I definitely agree, there is that kind of barrier that needs to be overcome. Not too sure how we can go about that, you know, in a, and implement kind of some way of bringing about change. Of course, that will take, you know, it's not something that we can change overnight. It will take, you know, a long term, long time to kind of, change that outlook, change that kind of um, mentality when it comes to kind of being either involved in clinical trials or being, you know, more confident when it comes to, you know, um, taking new drugs or vaccines or being more involved. But I think the problem is twofold. So it's, it's one on the hand of, you know, on one hand, it's, you know, the people that have this mistrust, but it's also on the other hand, the professionals and clinicians um, and the people that are leading these kind of um, initiatives that really need to kind of find ways in which to tap into the communities, um, you know, identify the problems, identify ways in which we can overcome them and actually, you know, begin to implement that. Um, so, yeah, definitely agree. There is, you know, there is an issue in terms of are the people that are actually needing these vaccines getting them? You know, you say, there's loads, you know, there's lots of evidence to point towards the fact that, you know, wealthier, um, you know, from more, you know, uh, you know, economically um, stable backgrounds are coming and getting these vaccines that should actually be, you know, administered to the people that, are, you know, are not getting them or are in, you know, in need of them. Um, so I think that's something like you say, it's not fake. It, it is the truth. It is the reality. And we need to kind of you know, um, come up with ways in which we can overcome this, this issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, so yeah, I think it's some food for thought. So yeah, again, I welcome people to, you know, send us some comments or some, or your thoughts on that. Um, so when we talk about like underlying conditions and especially, um, for populations that are underserved, right. Um, we, we kind of hit on this a little bit last, um, last time we spoke, you know, there's people who have diabetes, heart conditions, um, hypertension, cancer, you know, and people are taking medications and it's like, okay, are there contraindicators? How do we address people who um, have some of these issues? We know that, you know, the biggest killer, for example, of men is heart disease. That's both uh, uh, black and white men. Um, it's heart disease. So what about medications that people are taking that might pre pre prevent them um, from, you know, getting the vaccine, like, what do we know about those populations? Um, so I'd be interested to hear what you ladies think about, like, underlying conditions. I'll, I'll share a little of my understanding. Um, there are, thus far, and within my system um, and the guidance that we're reviewing through CDC, um, there are very few contraindications. Um, primarily, um, a lot of what you described were comorbidities, and those are the folks that really get higher on the priority list. Um, if you if you have a particular set of allergies, um, that's primarily one of the biggest contraindications. Um, and in those instances, it's strongly advised that you go to your 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 provider 
physician to make the determination as to whether you should receive the vaccine. But it's also required that there is a 15-minute monitoring period after receiving the vaccine. So you go into, I know in most systems, you go into a private room with a nurse or someone who's going to administer. They go through the paperwork, and then once you're given the vaccine, you have to sit and wait. And of course, that's to make sure that you don't go in, that you don't have any allergic reaction. So unless you have a history of really, really extreme allergies, I don't know. But I could definitely, I know that's the standard that we're moving with. So I'd like to hear if there's any research that speaks to any particular conditions precluding vaccine. So I would agree with Precious in terms of the comorbidities that put a person more at risk and why they would need to be vaccinated ahead of other people, say. But there ultimately are people, you know, that are not going to be able to get vaccinated. So like you mentioned, underlying people, those underlying health conditions that weaken the immune system, such as cancer or HIV, they may develop severe allergies to some certain vaccine components and may not be able to get vaccinated as a result. But I think that's where we come into discussion about herd immunity and, you know, why that's relevant, which I think, you know, Precious can touch upon in terms of what exactly that is and how it can, how it's relevant to these kind of populations that can't receive the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. You bring up a good point. We definitely need to talk about herd immunity. But before we get there, like, I want to kind of specifically go into, like, more of the, like, the recommendation, you know, who goes first, you know, underlying conditions. Like I said, you know, we do know that in the first trials, like, people with HIV weren't included. Another group that wasn't included were pregnant breastfeeding women. And clearly we know why a lot of times, you know, trials don't include pregnant and breastfeeding women. So a lot of the data on different things comes in later because there is that hesitation to just go experimenting on, you know, women carrying children, right? So, you know, let's talk about like some of the dangers or concerns for pregnant women. Like you are moms or about to be moms. So I'm especially interested in hearing, you know, from that point of view, you know, from that really personal point of view. Because the truth is like, yeah, in confinement, while we were in confinement, COVID does stop nature, you know? So we definitely had babies being born and still being created. Um, if anything, it's probably going to be another boom because we're in the house, right? So um, it, it amplified human nature, just like it amplified health disparities. So we do know that, you know, there are three major bodies, you know, that um, really discuss what happens with pregnant women, CDC, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, and the Society for Maternal and Fetal um, medicine, they do all agree that the mRNA vaccines are, um, and, and this is interesting, it didn't necessarily say safe for pregnant women, but it just said they can be offered, you know, they can, um, pregnant women can be eligible, but have a conversation with your MD. So that goes back to your point, Precious, about like the comorbidity. So it's really interesting, This and this also goes to the fact of how we promote things and how we say things. The word safe has not been used. It says that they can use it, but 
speak to your doctor. So, you know, um, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, Alia, give, give us something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I definitely agree with you in terms of uh, the messaging. Uh, you know, we still we keep coming back to the how things are you know presented and how what language we use as well. So we have to be really cautious and careful. And I think the main point, as you've mentioned, um, in terms of pregnant or breastfeeding individuals, for example, is you really need to weigh the benefits and risks at, with your doctor. Um, you know, you could understand, um, you know, that, yes, like you said, historically, you know, pregnant women are not included in these kind of drug vaccine trials. That's a known fact. Um that's it, you know, them being excluded does present a problem because we don't know how, you know, what the, wh how the, you know, how the vaccine or drug is going to affect these particular individuals uh, in the community. Um, but I think going back to the whole weighing the benefits and risks, you know, frontline workers who are pregnant, who are breastfeeding would potentially view it, you know, view taking the vaccine as something that they, for their personal reasons, view as something that they would want to do and are okay doing. Um, but people, you would argue that those people who aren't exposed to to the virus, who, are, who aren't frontline workers, there would be no particular need per se to kind of take, you know, a vaccine that still we don't we're still learning, you know, about the effects in pregnant women and breastfeeding women. Uh, you know, it's still in the preliminary stages in that regard. And, you know, um, it's only recently now that Pfizer Biotech have launched their clinical trial, which is, um, you know, specific for pregnant women. Um, and it will be the first of its kind in the United States. It's, you know, a rare step in clinical research that maternal health advocates, um, you know, agreeably all say is long overdue. Um, so that trial, if I um, if I'm not mistaken, includes 4000 pregnant women. Um, so that's something that's still, you know, we're still, you know, researching on, you know, developing our understanding with regards to the effects of the vaccine, how um, and its usage in this particular kind of cohort of the community. Um, we do know, however, it's important also to note that while the overall risk of the coronavirus in pregnant women is still generally low, according to um, CDC, um, pregnant women who get infected with it have an increased risk of complications such as preterm birth, needing to be hospitalized in intensive care unit or having to go on a ventilator. So those are important things to consider. And it goes back to, again, weighing the risk benefit. Um, and of course, ultimately talking to your doctor and you know, taking on his advice in a particular situation um, as a pregnant um, woman or breastfeeding woman as well. Um, but like you said, um, Deirdre, um, I think the general consensus is that the vaccine should be offered and it should be, you know, something that, you know, is a personal preference in terms of, you know, you have the choice whether to take it based on your circumstances or not. Um, so, yeah, and I guess the, the eligibility for pregnant women to be offered that vaccine, of course, varies from state to state. So there's some states that, you know, are offering it. Other states are still, you know, saying that, you know, pregnant women should wait, etc. Um, so, yeah, basically, um, I don't think we should judge people for the dis any decision they make, whether they choose to have it or they don't. Um, and hopefully with, the, you know, um, the start of this new Pfizer trial, we will hopefully gain more information and be able to make more of an informed decision when it comes to the specific cohort of, uh, of the population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. like I was reading 
you know, you know, some people they fear that uh, the 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 particles, right? The mRNA particles. It's like, well, does it affect the baby? But studies are showing, like, when it comes to the breast, well, the pregnancy, it's like it doesn't cross the placenta. But when the immunity is generated, that actually, you know, will cross the placenta because it, it's it's coming from a different like space um and it's similar with the breastfeeding once immunity is generated in the body it passes through the milk so um very interesting well just to add on that also we know already i mean the flu vaccine whooping cough vaccine um you know are routinely given to pregnant women um and you know they've got years upon years of uh, research that have gone into that um and those are kind of those are very much recommended vaccines for pregnant women to take in, in order to kind of pass on that immunity so yeah that's something to consider but i think um personally uh, uh, my personal opinion is still is still in the kind of preliminary stages uh, of understanding the effects of this particular covid va- or covid vaccines especially um on on pregnant women and breastfeeding women so um but yes like i said it, it's it's down to personal choice yeah I, w- I would agree with um with what you Deidre and ali have just stated i think it really what's been resonating like ringing in my mind is informed decision making right i think that the benefit to uh, a dialogue such as this you know and really digging and and finding out for yourself what is, what are your options, right? Because I think something key that Ali has spoke to is the, the rate of viral transmission to a pregnant woman is very low. So I think that there are things, and I know we'll get into those things in, in future episodes about just how you can maintain, you know, how you can remain safe, or at least what we know are some of the, the proven things that we should look into making sure we incorporate into our day-to-day life living um, in order to fight off the, the likelihood of us um, getting this virus. So I think that's something, if, if I were a pregnant woman right now, that I would be cognizant of. And as a mother, it's something that I'm very, very vigilant about, you know, something as basic as fundamental hand hygiene, you know, um, is, is something that's like, if you weren't drilling it before, this is something that you must drill, especially with the little ones, just how important hand hygiene is and just keeping your hands off of your face, out of your mouth and nose and all of those sort of things. Um, it seems very basic, but it is that basic. Um, and so with that, uh, you know, each, Particularly, I think it's such a delicate topic, which is why most states haven't, well, well, across the country, there hasn't been a blanket statement. One, because there's no research to support what that blanket statement should be, um, which is why it's being left up to the local physician and the individual to decide. But the thing is, you just really have to, it's due diligence and in being an informed yeah. consumer, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, making those informed decisions about your health and, and where that starts is having like the information as much as you can so that you can then turn it into what your action is and then how you understand that and then spread it along to other people. Um, and, and I think it's really key to know, like, just because there are 
vaccinations, regardless of if it's COVID or anything else, there's still precautions and ways that we should move, you mm-hmm. know, that we, when, when it comes to flu season, don't go sitting around people who have the flu, you know, you still catch it, you know, don't go um, outside, like right after you've taken a shower while your pores are open, there's still like these basic, like you said, like very basic behaviors and activities that we have to be cognizant of so that means like even now we are still wear your mask wash your hands don't put them on your face or in your mouth maintain the social distancing for now you know that's just where we are you know when we talk about the new normal that's where we are now so there are some basic things that basic behaviors that are going to be going to have to be normalized for us, you know, now and then going into the future um, until we don't have to do it anymore uh, unless that day doesn't come. So, yeah. And then, so that it moves us, it just moves us on forward to what you mentioned before, Alia, was the herd immunity as we have all these things and like as people are deciding, like, well, should I take it, should I not? You know, there are people on both sides of the fence um, because the issues of va- vaccines have been a polarizing topic since um, some studies reveal that there may be a connection to certain diseases like autism. So, you know, it's a really um, kind of uh, emotional, it, it, it evokes emotion in a lot of people on, you know, whether how strongly or not, you know, they feel about it. So um, one thing that is um, interesting is like this idea of herd immunity. And this is not a way to say like, well, if you don't want to take it, here's an option. Because again, there's some basic behaviors that we are going to have to engage in. So like Precious, like tell us about, you know, herd immunity. And it's like you said earlier, like when we talk offline, it's very simple, but you say it so much more eloquently than I. So, you know, give us like the Give the people the information on what that means, um, especially when it comes to vaccines. Sure. So I guess the simplest way to consider herd immunity or population immunity um, is the idea that if you think of the whole being 100 percent, there is a threshold by which if this percent of the population is immune to a particular disease, the likelihood of that smaller percent who are not immune, whether it's through never being exposed to the virus or never taking the vaccine, automatically just become less likely to contract the contract the disease, only because the disease isn't as prevalent in that community. So if we think about herd immunity from that perspective, you'll think, and we, we spoke about the pregnant women who perhaps may decide to not vaccine. What we didn't speak to is that zero to 16 year old, right, who also are not eligible to take the vaccine as per CDC because there is no research to really support um, the efficacy or even the um, the risk versus the benefits to, to doing so. So those two, and then you also mentioned those with um, immune deficiencies that cannot or should not, you know, take the vaccine. So even if we go not from folks who are abstaining due to their own convictions, but those who truly should not take this vaccine, um, what herd immunity does is it ensure the expectation is that if 70 and and in the United States, it's um, most scientists are saying that about 72 percent of the population Um, needs to either have been exposed to the virus or take the vaccine in order to ensure herd immunity. So then the question is, what happens with 
that other, the other 28%, right? So with that 28%, they will benefit from the immunity of the 72. So I want to just pause there and just make sure that that makes sense before I go further. So you all tell me, does that, like, are there any questions about how? I definitely agree with you, Precious. A really good kind of definition and description of what exactly herd immunity is. And, you know, I echo what you say in terms of, I think it's important to understand that you don't need to, you know, vaccination is one part of the, you know, the equation. You can, you know, develop, you know, herd immunity also by being exposed to the virus and recovering from it. So that's also important to know. And also, I think it's something to mention is that no single vaccine provides 100% protection. And herd immunity, in the same way, does not provide full protection as well to those who cannot safely be vaccinated. But with herd immunity, these people, you know, can potentially have a substantial amount of protection, thanks to those, you know, around them who have been vaccinated or who have been exposed to the virus, etc. So, yeah, no, that's basically what I'd add on to what Precious, you know, said in regards to that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally clear on what it is. And I think, yes, like you said, it's really important to know, you know, it's it's really not about those who are choosing to abstain, because, again, it's it's your choice on what you're going to do. But really thinking about those who cannot or should not, you know, not the not and and because that's where it does make a difference and 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 cannot be like because the, the trials maybe didn't include them but like we spoke of before the people who have not been able to receive yet because of access yeah. so they are part of those cannots as well yeah and the one thing i did want to just touch on is there is a name for that 28 percent right so what they're getting is indirect immunity. So mm-hmm. by virtue of, you know, the 72% doing their part, if you will, um, that 28% just has what, what, what is called indirect immunity. Um, and so to me, it really just drives the, the necessity for going to those basic, doing those basic things to keep yourself mm-hmm. safe. So, yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with the fact, you know, going back to the fact that, you know, we do still need to take precautions. Um, You know, a lot of people get this misconception that, oh, you know, if I get vaccinated or I've been exposed to the virus, um, then I don't need to take the precautions that, you know, other people are doing. When in actual fact, no, like like I said, there's no guarantee of 100 percent protection, you know, in terms of a transmission, et cetera. We still, you know you know, researching and understanding um, the virus itself. So, yeah, it's really important to take those precautions and, you know, be aware and, um, you know, just taking into consideration the others that you're surrounded by um, and protecting them as well. Another thing to consider is 
when we when we think about herd immunity and we think about particularly with with COVID-19, um, we also have to recognize just like with influenza or any other viral infection, there's a spectrum as far as symptomatology goes. And so there there are many, many people who contract COVID-19 and are asymptomatic. Um, And so, you know, we have to think about what the implication is going to be in the future, because even if we see sharp declines in hospitalization rates, that's a huge win. Um, because you can still have high COVID numbers or moderate COVID numbers, but see a decline in hospitalization rates and count this as a win. Because if we can, if we can see COVID become something similar to the flu, then that means that you're able to manage at home that, you know, you, you, you need to stay home and to, to protect yourselves and your, and your loved ones. But not that you're in the hospital, intubated, you know, on a ventilator. That, that's really what we're, we need to focus on. Um, mm-hmm. I think many often saying we want a world without COVID and that would be fantastic, but we, we need to also acknowledge the wins and a, a huge win would be seeing those hospitalization rates go down. Right. Yeah. 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 So I think like just some basic truths is here at True Health Live is like, I think what we have to remember, um, even though we're talking about vaccines, there's the basic um, behaviors that need to be uh, considered and maintained. Wear your mask, wash your hands, and maintain the social distancing. Like we, those are just like the behaviors that are normalized now. And with that, I think, you know, we can wrap up the vaccines. It really brought out some really interesting concepts um, and that'll even bring us into our next conversation where we talk about, you know, um, all the things we should be doing, right? Because if we're thinking about people who can't take the vaccine, shouldn't, or whether, even if it is that you won't, again, it's, it's your choice. Um, but what are some things that we should be doing when it comes to overall living, nutrition? There's things like home remedies, er- aromatherapy, herbal therapy, um, living on purpose so you can thrive, right? So, you know, those are some things we'll look into um, after this conversation. So, um, as I said, you know, there were some questions in this, uh, this uh, episode discussion and some things to think about. So leave us your thoughts, you know, let us know what you think. Thank you for joining us here at True Health Live. Remember to like, save, share, and subscribe. Leave a comment and send an email if there's a topic if you want to discuss. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at True Health Live. You can also listen on DeidreSully.com. If there's a topic you'd like to discuss or hear, you can send an email to TrueHealthLive at gmail.com. See you next time.